So here we are, and I'm going to reiterate uh, verse 7, which is where we are this morning. In the, in the, in the scope of verses 1 through 17, we're at the portion where God, speaking to his people, says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Wow. I mean, here's a commandment with a threat right? Like this is, this is uh, one of the ones that on the tail end of it says, hey, if you screw this one up, you're in trouble. And, and so here we come this morning to the word of God with uh, a prayer for perspective. And, and I'm promised not to bring in some legalism this morning. We're going we're gonna to talk about how this relates to us. What is God speaking to us? What's he saying? In October 2nd, on October 2nd, 1998, I stood in a tuxedo, awkwardly, with what I would estimate was a bad haircut, as I look at the pictures, in front of my family and friends, with Trisha, my wife, and I said a whole bunch of stuff in front of those people. How many of you guys were there at some point in your lives? Some of you. Some of you will be. And I said some things. I promise to love you. I promise to cherish you. I promise to keep you. I promise that I will be with you whether you're sick, whether you're healthy. I promise, I promise, I promise. And we exchanged promises on October 2nd, 1998. Kind of a big deal, right? And, and it began our relationship in such a way that we started this journey together with an understanding between each other and between us and God. And we started our relationship really with a set of parameters, right? With an understanding of how this relationship was going to work. And, and how many of you guys know that as we went through our first year and now 16 years of marriage, that understanding and those parameters and those rules have grown, right? <laughs> Anybody understand what I'm talking about? They've developed and they've grown. Now, <clears throat> this is an imperfect example of what God is speaking to us today. So as C.S. Lewis would say, um, it's, it's imperfect. If it helps you, great. If it doesn't, throw it away. But but. I'm going to give you, in the context of these promises, uh, an imperfect understanding of, of what I believe God is doing here in these Ten Commandments. I think it's important to point out some context. Historically, some context of what we've been talking about. And if you haven't been with us for the last several weeks, what we've watched happen in the book of Exodus is... God coming to his people who are in slavery and who are basically the greatest empire on the face of the planet at that time period is being built on the backs of these slaves who God has identified as his people and who for generations now have been um, unknown. They, they haven't really known him in the way that they did previous as you look in the Old Testament. And so here they are in Egypt as slaves, and God comes to them, and, and he sends Moses 
This imperfect dude who doesn't talk very well, who just murdered somebody, and who's hanging out in the wilderness um, with a Midianite wife, he sends him after revealing to him who he is through the burning bush. I am. And he reveals his name. And he sends Moses to his people. And we see the Exodus, right? And we've watched, as we've walked through this, God reaching out to his people and delivering them from slavery. And he begins to first, he delivers them, right? And then he begins to build this relationship with them. As he comes to them after saving them, he shows them who he is. He begins to show them what type of God he is. And so as they exodus, as they're delivered, he, he parts the Red Sea. You've seen the movie, right? He parts the Red Sea, and they walk through it on dry land. As, as he shows them that he is the God who can rescue them. He is the God who saves them. And then as they go into the wilderness and they don't have coolers and ice, right, <laughs> and dry ice, they, he, he begins to provide for them. He shows them he is the God who, in relationship with them, who's rescued them, who saved them from slavery, now he's the God who, who provides for them. And, and food shows up every single day. Every morning they wake up and there's food. And they're in the desert and they're thirsty. And every day... They, they hit a rock, and there's water pouring from this rock, and, and, and God's providing food. God's providing water, and he's providing for them and, and, and displaying for them who he is in relationship to him. And so what God's done is he's delivered his people. He's showing them who he is as their provider, as their rescuer, as their savior. And now what he's doing is he's building a relationship with his people, and he's displaying for them now the parameters that make sense? I think it's important that he saved them and now he's laying out for them the rules on how they're to relate to each other because he didn't do it the other way around. Amen? Like he didn't just come to a bunch of people who didn't know him, who he hadn't saved yet, and walked into Egypt and was like, hey, um, if you guys figure these 10 things out, then I'll rescue you. Does that make sense? God didn't do that. He didn't do that with us either, did he? He rescued us. And now he's developing how to relate. Can you imagine a relationship without this? Hey, honey, we're going to be together, um, but I get to do what I want. You get to do what you want. We're not really exclusive. There's no parameters. How many of you guys think that would, that would work? I don't think so. And so God reveals who he is and how they're to relate to him through his law. You know, I think it's important to talk about this before I jump into verse 7. Because it would be very easy for us to slip into a mindset in relationship to the Ten Commandments and to God's law that, that could be very burdensome and crushing. And I think there's a part of it that should be. And I want to get to that. You know, we talk a lot about the idea that we're saved by grace. Isn't that true? And I think it's important as we approach the Ten Commandments and the law of God to understand it in the context of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Because I think some people have, have the wrong mindset as they enter into a relationship with Jesus who has fulfilled the law and they realize that God's love has saved them and that because of Jesus we stand under Romans 3 declared not guilty 
He's the justifier. He is just and he's the justifier. And somehow because of Christ and what he's done, we stand not guilty. And, and then we walk into a relationship with God after being saved by grace. And sometimes our mindset is, okay, then the law doesn't mean anything to us anymore. How many of you guys know that's not true? This stuff is huge. This is important. The law of God is a blessing. It's a curse, and Paul talks about that to, in one sense, and then, and then because Jesus has freed us, it becomes a blessing and a freedom. So if we're saved by grace, Paul asks this question in Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Does this law mean we have no obligation to submit to God's written word? Do we have to obey the law? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we approach the Ten Commandments, an understanding of who God is and how he relates to his people, and we recognize that we are, C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity, we're like tin men. And God is working at us and slowly peeling away the tin as we are brought into a place where we're a real man. We're, we're, we're really who God intended us to be. We're the spiritual man that God has, has called us to be. And, and Christ is at work in us doing that. But, but that is living up to the law in the way that God has revealed it. Tim Keller writes this. To be under the law refers not to law obeying, but law relying not to law obeying, but law relying. And so there's something we need to grasp as we, as we look at the Ten Commandments, as we look at the law of God, that as Paul says, we're no longer under the law, but we are relying on the law. The law is no longer crushing us because Jesus has fulfilled it for us when we couldn't do it. But in Christ's fulfillment and allowing us to be in relationship with God, we now have the freedom and the blessing of living in it, of relying on it, and, and watching God create us and, and, and do something within us that causes us to be the type of human beings he's designed us to be. Amen? Does that make sense? And that's where we're headed together as we approach the Ten Commandments. Galatians 3 Verse 10 and 11 says, For all who rely on the work of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. When we attempt to win God's approval by law obeying, becomes a crushing burden. But in Christ, who has fulfilled the law, we get to live in the blessing and in the beauty of law relying, of moving towards what God designed as ideal for us, what God, as Tim Keller says, designed as what is best for human flourishing. God, who made us, knows what he made us for, doesn't he? And he knows how we work best, doesn't he? Isn't it amazing that God is smarter than us? And that God, who created us, he knows how he created us, what he created us for, and how we best work 
in relationship to him and in relationship to each other. And so he has designed an understanding of who he is and what his law is and how he's designed us to live that is best for human flourishing. And the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that none of us live up to it. We all fall short. And as we look at the law and the Ten Commandments and how Jesus expands upon it in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, I, I, there was one, one pastor who said, oh God, save us from the Sermon on the Mount, right? I mean, as you read what Jesus lays out is really what our heart should be in relationship to the law. It can become crushing, but Jesus fulfilled the law so that we now have the, beauty, the, the freedom, I'm sorry, to live in the beauty of it. Amen? That's where we are. We can't earn salvation, but because of Jesus, we can enjoy the beauties of God's law as fulfilled in Christ. Listen to this quote by Keller, who wrote an article on law and grace. Here we see that the law of God is a gift of grace that is the foundation of human flourishing. It is not busy work assigned just to please the arbitrary whims of a capricious deity. The law of God is simply shows us what human beings were built to do. To worship God alone. To love their neighbors themselves. To tell the truth. Keep their promises. Forgive everything. Act with justice. When we move against these laws, we move against our own natures and happiness. Disobedience to God sets up strains in the fabric of reality that can only lead to breakdown. Pretty amazing, huh? Let's look at this. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Wow, when I approached this verse, I, uh, I sat for a moment. <laughs> and, and Stuart, he asked three questions. Um, and I think they're important questions to take a look at. And I, I want to kind of walk through these questions briefly as we look at this passage together. What is involved in taking God's name in vain? What does that even mean, to take the Lord's name in vain? Secondly, why is his name so important? That protecting it is one of the ten fundamental commandments to Israel. His name's a big deal. Amen? And third, what kind of punishment might ensue for breaking this commandment? You know, this commandment comes with that punishment, that idea of you will not be held not guilty by God. You will not be held guiltless by God if you break it. You know, so what's involved with taking the Lord's name in vain? And as I looked at this and, and actually dove into um, what, what he's saying here in, in the language, it's, it's really an idea that there is a misuse of the name of, of the Lord. When we take the Lord's name in vain, there is a misuse of his name. And I feel like I almost should go to number two first to talk about why his name is so great, and we'll get there. But there's an idea of the misuse of the name of the Lord. It's, it's, it's me invoking Yahweh to guarantee my words to you as a guarantor that what I'm saying is the truth. 
may Yahweh kill me if what I'm saying isn't true to you, or punish me if what I'm saying isn't true to you. There's an idea here in Scripture that, that, that is developed throughout as we get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that there's, there's a, a misuse of the great name of God, God who has revealed himself as Yahweh, and everything that that entails, and, and everything that his name means. He's revealed his name which is in his essence, which describes his character, which describes who he is to his people. And, and, and for someone to stand up and say, in the name of Yahweh, you can believe me, or what I'm saying is true. To misuse his name is to take it in vain. This should Make the hair on the back of our neck stand up a little, shouldn't it? How often do we do this? How often do we say, well, this is what God's telling me to do. Well, God really wants me to do this. But God just wants me to be happy in this area. Invoking God to add some credibility to your words should be sobering to us. should be something that gives us pause. should be something that makes us say, wait a minute, did he really say that? Because I'm using his name to make me sound better. I promise you, I promise you by Yahweh. It's another way to, to misuse his name. By God, I promise that I'm going to do this or do that. From this, as you need to understand here, God, in laying out his law to his people, let's take some historical context, is laying out the parameters, not just for relationship with his people, but he's laying out the parameters for a theocracy, for a government governed by God in relationship to his people. And as he's developing these laws, what we see here from the word of God, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, becomes the basis for what we understand, and really it's speaking to in, in, in verse 7, is perjury. If you're going to swear to tell the truth by the name of God in a court, it comes from the Ten Commandments comes from verse 7. I find this interesting because I'm a lawyer and I'm in court all the time. And you see part of the fabric of our society is built on truth-telling, isn't it? I mean, I studied contracts. I studied business and the way people relate to each other and the way people contractually relate. And there was a day, right, and I hate to say it this way, but there was a day when people told the truth. Wasn't there? There was a day when, when you hear about it. I watch movies about it. <laughs> Isn't it sad to say it this way? Where you see men passing on to their sons that your word is your bond. When you say something, it means something. If you lose the idea that your word doesn't mean anything to more, anymore, you've lost everything. There was an understanding based in the way that God has revealed himself to his people and how they're to interact with each other and interact with him, that they would be people who tell the truth. 
They would be people who, when they swore an oath, they, they, they meant it. When they said that they were going to do something, they were going to do it, and you could rely on it. You can bank on it. And he began to develop a society of people in these Ten Commandments that related to each other in a way that honored him and reflected him. And, and it built a fabric of a community of people that did things that were important to God, that acted in such a way that they reflected who God was. And a big part of that was people who told the truth whose words could be believed. I go back to Keller's quote. When we move against these laws, we move against our own natures and happiness. Disobedience to God sets up strains in the fabric of our reality that can only lead to breakdown. How many of you have seen strain and breakdown in our society, because we don't have people who tell the truth anymore. This is built in to the fabric of even our community. Someone stands up in a courtroom, puts their hand on the Bible still to this day, and raises their right hand and says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God which we even built that in with, I think, a good theological understanding that we weren't saying, by God's name, I am telling the truth. What we've done in our oath through our community and through our society for hundreds of years is not that I swear by God's name I'm telling the truth. What we said is I'm going to tell the truth, so help me, God. God, give me the ability to be truthful as I stand up here and speak in this very important Proceeding. So the idea of perjury comes from this, and, and we rely on it in our society. When someone does that, we're relying on them to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help them God. But Jesus goes even further with this in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you've heard that it's said, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So here's what Jesus is saying here. He's taking this idea of thou shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Thou shall not swear falsely. Thou shall not make an oath unto God. Of course you would never make an oath saying that by God's name what I'm saying is true. He's saying don't even say by your city's name what you're saying is true. Don't even say by your own head, you know, because you can't make your hair black or white, that by your own head what you're saying is true. What he's saying is simply just tell the truth. Say yes or say no. In fact, when you're talking to each other, you should speak so truthfully that it's as if you are under oath. That's what Jesus is saying. Every time you say anything to anyone, it should be as if you're under oath, swearing to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Isn't that powerful? Jesus goes a step further. Just tell the truth all the time. Be truthful to each other. 
How amazing would it be as a community of people who know and love Jesus, who've been rescued by a Christ who has fulfilled the law on our behalf, that we move into a grateful place and into a beautiful place of fulfilling the law through his strength and through his forgiveness, and that we reflect a community of people who tell the truth to each other. We speak truthfully. When we say something, it means something. When we say it, we're going to do it. There's an idea of integrity and truthfulness that comes along with someone who's a Christian. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's what God's calling us to. It's what he's asking of us here in this passage. You know, another idea of this is a hijacking. And we do this. It's a hijacking of God for our agenda. When we, when we take the Lord's name in vain. It's this idea of sanctioning God's name for your agenda. Does that make sense? You know, this is what I'd like to do. This is where I'm headed. And boy, you know what? I'm right because God said this is where I should go and what I should do. You know, we talk all the time at Renovation Church about telling your grace story. Telling a grace story. And as you're communicating to people in your circle, where God's placed people in your lives, and as you're sharing your story of what God's done, i got to ask you a very simple question, and I think it rises out of Scripture here in verse 7. Are you telling God's story or yours? Are you telling God's story or yours? Are you, as a Christian, coming in line with who God is and what he's revealed himself to be and who he said he is and, and how he's rescued and saved you and brought you into relationship with that and speaking clearly about the reality of who God is in your life as he's revealed himself to be? Or have you just taken the name of God and gone about your own way in your own desires and in your own life and in the own, your own things of what you'd like to do and just plopped God's name on it? Does that make sense? So there's this idea of taking the Lord's name in vain where we sometimes in our sinfulness and in our selfishness go our own way in our own agenda and we hijack God's name and put it on our agenda to make it sound better. God's called us to come under who he is. You know... As we look at the law, I think this is, this is an important point, and I pray that God helps me communicate it to you well. Because sometimes we, in our own mindset and selfishness, we want to do what we think is best for that person, or what we think is best for us, or what we think, we think is best in the way that we relate in a particular situation. How in the world do you know what's best? Or do I know what's best? Are you guys following with me? You know, is it best for, for, that, for, for someone to sleep with that person outside of marriage because it just makes them happy and feel good in the moment? They just need that. Is it best for this? Is it best for me to lie in this situation because if I told the truth, it's going to be very detrimental to my financial situation or my business? Is it best for, for me to act in a particular way? Listen, the reality of what is best 
for the way we interact with each other and what we do in a given situation is described and declared by God in his law and how we're supposed to behave. Does that make sense? He knows what's best. And if we're telling his story, we're a redeemed people who've, who live in such a way that he's glorified. Can I tell you something? That as you live in that way, you're going to see the blessing of God and the joy and the beauty of the law is going to become a part of your life. Amen? I hope I'm getting that across. There is an idea of familiarity when it comes to taking the Lord's name in vain that you see rise from the meaning of these words in Scripture. And overtly mocking or using God's name disrespectfully. How many of you heard that? You know, I think sometimes when we see this passage, the first thing we think of is someone who swears using God's name, right? Don't use the Lord's name. I remember growing up. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. I would say, oh my. And my mom would say, gosh. <laughs> right? <laughs> Somehow adding an SH to the end just changed everything. <laughs> so, you know, and, and there's something about that. There's something about um, howling. I'm saying that word wrong. Howl be thy name in the Lord's prayer. How will be thy name? His name should be spoken of with reverence. His name should be howled. Is that a word? Hallowed? Thank you. <laughs> Keller says to hallow his name is, is to treat it as sacred and ultimate. I think that's what he's talking about. And sometimes we misuse it. Sometimes we throw it out there. Sometimes we use it mockingly. Sometimes we use it in a way that doesn't reflect how sacred and ultimate he is. Why is his name so important that protecting it is one of the Ten Commandments? <laughs> Yahweh signifies his essence. We see that, that a name is a verbal signal for a person. Um, and we don't do that as much today, do we? I mean, we, we, we just name people because we like the name. It, we don't necessarily think about the meaning as much. Um, I, don't, I don't even remember what my name means. You can tell me after. But, you know, we, we name names because we like those names, right? Um, some people do do that. I notice some Christians do take the, the meaning of the name as serious. But in the ancient world, the meaning of a name, when you name somebody... That, that name came with a character, with a definition, with an understanding of what it meant. And as God revealed his name, that's exactly what he was doing, and that's exactly how they understood it. Does that make sense? I was standing in court three or four years ago, and I happened to be in a family courtroom that heard criminal cases too, and there was family and criminal stuff going on. So as a prosecutor, it was annoying. Um, but... But I, I was there, nonetheless, covering a calendar, a court calendar. And as a part of the court calendar, there was a criminal case between these two young people who had a child in common because the, the male half had assaulted the female half. But there was also a family court thing where they were trying to decide who was dad, like Maury Povich. You know what I'm saying? So I was standing there, and they had gotten the DNA results back. And so it was interesting. I stood there, and, and the judge, who was struggling with this, looked at... 
the, the female holding the baby who was standing next to me, and the man was standing next to his lawyer on the other side, and he said, listen, it's 99.9%, the DNA's back, he is the father of Eugenius. And she looked up and said, y'all jealous? That's what she said. <laughs> to which I looked at her, and she was like, y'all jealous? <laughs> and I said, okay. And the judge said, y'all jealous. The traditional spelling, that was the child's name. Y'all jealous. <laughs> there, was, there was some meaning in, in the name of this child that she had named. Um, that was one of the funniest ones I have seen. Um, but we don't do that as much anymore, right? We don't, we don't name with meaning. But here we see in the ancient world. Sorry, I had to tell you that. <laughs> Names signify value. Names signify character. Names signify influence. Stuart says in his commentary on Exodus, to speak Yahweh's name was to recognize his awesome power and holiness and even to invite his response to one's particular situation at the moment. To even speak the name Yahweh was to recognize his awesome power his holiness, and to invite his response to a particular situation. There was an understanding in the life of the people of God in this day that his name meant he was awesome, he was holy, he was terrifying, he was loving, he was able to provide. And he was able to come into a particular situation like starvation or thirst or great need. And he was able to move in a particular moment with great power in a way that they couldn't provide for themselves. And to speak his name, to even say it, to utter it on your lips, meant something. The confession of a name has power. The verbalizing of something actually creates. We see in Genesis chapter 1 that God spoke and there was light. He spoke and the earth was created. He spoke and animals came into existence. There was a day that some of you sitting in this room had something going on in your heart as God was drawing you and you were beginning to recognize the depth of your own sinfulness and your need for a savior that you cried out and you said, God, save me. I accept you as my personal savior in the spoken word of your confession caused something cosmically to happen in your life that took you from a life headed from separation with God to a life in his presence forever. To speak the name of God is awesome, and it, is, it, should be, it should be done with a sober mind, and it should be done recognizing who he is, because his name comes with meaning of power, character, influence, and a God who's ready to help in a given situation. Amen? We cannot allow the grace and love of our God, who has fulfilled the law on our behalf, 
to cause us to, to continue to walk in sin because he saved us, that's insane. Paul says, absolutely not. That is not what he's called us to do. He's called us to recognize the grace and the love of a, of a Christ who has fulfilled the law on our behalf and saved us. To enable us to now respond in freedom and in worship. To live the life that he designed for us. That, that, that provides for us the best way to flourish. In a way that honors and worships him. A life that worships him. And that's a life that takes his name serious. That's a life of someone who when they speak something they mean it. And they tell the truth. Amen. In Amos chapter 6, verse 10, we see how awesome the name of God is that those who did not follow the law and those who did not love God, they did not wish any connection with his judgment. They had such fear that they wouldn't even speak his name. You see that in Amos chapter 6, verse 10. There was a time when they did not even speak the name Yahweh. God is setting up parameters by which we relate to him. And one of those things that's important to him is that his name and everything that it means be honored and respected and not used in vain. And not used as some magical formula to attach to our own agenda. But to only be used to represent him and who he's revealed himself to be. He will not hold him who does this guiltless. What is this punishment? Here's my brilliant assessment of what this is. It doesn't say. <laughs> it's very general. We see in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 14, 14 through 16, 27, 15, 29, 21, that they are banished, the false prophets who take his name in vain, who would speak in the name of the Lord that something is true, and they're false. They're false prophets, using the name of Yahweh to articulate something that they want to articulate. Oh Lord, as, as those of us who communicate the word of God, how sobering is this? They were put to death. They were banished. They were exiled and killed by their captors. They took the Lord's name in vain. You know, the punishment for a violation of this, that you would not be held guiltless, really does illustrate the judgment of God for all sin, doesn't it? I mean, we understand that as we look at the Ten Commandments, as we look at this commandment in particular, and as we look at Matthew chapter 5, we see something very clear, and it's what Paul described for us in Romans. It's what Paul described for us in Galatians. It is to be under the law is to be cursed. To be under the law is to be found guilty. You cannot be found guiltless. 
as you look at the law of God, as you look at Matthew chapter 5 and how our hearts are supposed to be in relationship to each other, as you look at this provision of the law where we're to speak the truth, where we're to not take the name of the Lord's name in vain, it should be crushing. It should be devastating. Paul says it in Romans that the law of God is devastating. But I want you to hear good news this morning. That God so loved us that his son was devastated. His son was crushed so that you don't have to be. Jesus came and fulfilled the law in its entirety. And the judgment of God for sin devastated him. The judgment of God for our sin crushed Jesus on our behalf. And in God's great love for us, he crushed his own son so that we can stand in relationship with him. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see every area where we have completely blown this. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees the one who has fulfilled the law. He sees the one who's done it on our behalf for us so that we can stand, as Roman 3 says, acquitted. God looks upon us and says, not guilty, even though we are. But Jesus took upon our guilt on himself so that we stand not guilty in relationship with him. Amen? Our response to this is not to walk away and say that the law doesn't matter. Please hear this. Our response to God's grace and love towards us, the crushing and devastating of his son on our behalf, should cause us to walk away and not say the law doesn't matter, but we should walk away and say, God, because of this, cause me, cause me to live in the beauty of your law. Cause me to worship you with my life. The sacrifice of my worship be unto you. That I would be someone who loves his neighbor. That I would be someone who tells the truth. That I would be someone who doesn't covet other people's stuff but finds my provision in you. That I would be someone who would be generous and give to the poor. And give amounts of money that you describe in the New Testament as being well beyond sacrifice. That I would be someone who lives in such a way that when I say something, I mean it. And people can bank on it and count on it because I tell the truth. Amen? This is what he's called us to. Tim Keller writes again in this article that I'm quoting often, do God's will not because it is exciting, though it will eventually be an adventure. Not because it will meet your needs, though it will eventually be a joy. Not because you understand why this is the path of wisdom, though it will eventually become more clear. Do it because he's your Lord. And Savior, and you are not. Do it because it is the law of the Lord. And if you do it, if you obey Him, even in the little things, you will know God. You'll know yourself. You'll find God's grace. You'll love your neighbor and simply honor Him as God. Not a bad deal. So what I'm asking this morning 
as we look at this together. Let's embrace the law so that we can learn about who God really is. So that we can embrace the law and discover who we really are as he's laid it out. So that we can embrace the law and we can recognize what we were built for. We're built to worship God and worship God alone. Amen? We're built to love our neighbors as ourselves. We were built to tell the truth to each other. We were built to keep promises. We were built to forgive. To forgive always. And we were built to be just. In the last pushing 20 years now of being involved in pastoral ministry, and please hear me, I, I see this speaking to myself as much as anyone else, because there's definitely been these moments in my life. How many times do you hear in the life of someone else, I just have to make this decision that's contrary to what God's word says, contrary to the law of God, but I just have to make this decision because right now this is what I need to do to be happy. Who hears this stuff all the time? How many times do we say that to ourselves? That is the quickest way. If we recognize that God knows and he's designed what's best, that is the quickest way to not be happy. The pursuit of happiness is the quickest way to be miserable. As Psalm 1 declares, the pursuit of the law of God, the tree whose branches go down deep into that river that gives life, the law of God, as the river is described to be, the law of God is that river will enable you to weather any storm, any, any blistering heat, any terrible winter, as your branches go deep into the law of God, you will experience that joy that goes beyond your ability to understand, as the Bible describes. Most of the time, the right decision is what? The hard one. Because to tell the truth in this situation, right now my felt need is to get away with it so I'm not feeling pain or discomfort. But to tell the truth is what God calls you to do. That's the hard decision, right? As you live a life responding to the gospel of Christ in a life of worship, obeying the law, you will see the joy and the beauty of who God's designed you to be in relationship to him. Amen? Let's live in the beauty and the freedom of the law fulfilled by Christ so we can know our Father, so we can represent him in the world and discover who he has created us to really be. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just thank you this morning for your word. You have given us so much. You have revealed so much to us of who you are in your word. And yet sometimes we just don't listen. Sometimes we just don't look. 
Sometimes we just want to go our own way. And God, I ask that you would enable me, that you would enable us to respond to your word with a life of worship. We thank you that you have fulfilled the law, but we move in that freedom that Jesus has given us, not to earn your love because you've already given it, but we do it so that we can worship you, so that we can know you better, so that we can know ourselves better, so that we can flourish in the way that you've designed us to flourish. We look to your law and we ask you to enable us to live in it, enable us to enjoy it. This morning, God, we in particular, we held your name. We recognize that you have revealed to us to the degree our brains can grasp it. Your awesomeness that is wrapped up in this name. Help us to honor it. Help us to understand it and grasp it more. Help, it, help us not to use it as an attachment to our own agenda to give us credibility. But God, I ask that you enable us to, to not use your name to make us sound more credible, but I ask that you help us to live in the way that you've called us to so that we actually are more credible, so that we would honor you in the way that we speak, that we would tell the truth, to never speak your name in vain, because your name is great. In Jesus' name, everybody says.